This week's episode is made possible by our friends at Independent Bank. You can learn more about them at i-bankonline.com. Good morning, Memphis. You're listening to Meanwhile in Memphis on WYXR Radio 91.7 FM. The Meanwhile in Memphis radio show and podcast are brought to you by New Memphis, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to develop, activate, and retain the city's most important resource, its people. Today's conversation is a rewind to introduce New Memphis's Celebrate What's Right event series. Throughout the year, New Memphis hosts events to shine a light on the impactful leadership happening in the city and to connect professionals at all levels with opportunities to activate their leadership skills. Join New Memphis at the next Celebrate What's Right, Creative Economics, on February 27, 2024, to hear from leaders who are working in the collaborative intersection of arts, culture, and the economy. Head to newmemphis.org slash events to learn more. Today's conversation will take us back to the future to revisit a conversation about adaptive reuse from October 2023. We'll be taking a look at the ways that Memphis is growing, learning, and leading by example. This event was made possible by First Horizon, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Tennessee, Bass Barian Sims, and Montgomery Martin Contractors. This conversation was moderated by Brandon Harrington, and the leaders you'll hear from today are Ashley Cash, Tony Policiotti, Stuart Harris, Tanya Meeks, Quincy Jones, McLean Wilson, and special guest Henry Turley. Without further ado, let's tune in. My name is Anna Ellis. I'm the president and CEO of New Memphis. We are hosting this gig today. Um, This is part of our Celebrate What's Right luncheon series where we pick a topic of city progress, a place where we're authentically proud, where we want to celebrate something that Memphis is doing. And today we're going to talk about responsible urban development and specifically adaptive reuse, um, which is part of why we are here in this gorgeous space, a great example of breathing new life into an old space. I think this neighborhood in general um, is a great example of us embracing the old and making it new again. Um, Before we begin, I want to, of course, thank our wonderful sponsors, First Horizon uh, Foundation, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Tennessee, as well as Montgomery Martin Contractors and Bassberry Sims. Thank you all very, very much for making this possible. You can, yep, thank them for your lunch. If you've been to these luncheons before, you're familiar probably with a panel format, and we decided to do things a little bit differently today. Um, We're going to have basically two-way interviews, so you're going to get to hear from each of our speakers for a dedicated amount of time. We're going to ask them questions, and then they're going to ask each other questions. Um, So before we get started, I want to first... Uh, play a video, which is in front of me. Um, Our friends over at Blue Cross Blue Shield are at an important meeting in Nashville today and could not be with us, but our friend, our new Memphis trustee, uh, Kevin Woods, the Memphis market president for Blue Cross Blue Shield, has a little message for you. So turn your attention to the screens, please. Good afternoon. I'm Kevin Woods, new Memphis trustee and Memphis market president for Blue Cross Blue Shield of Tennessee. Unfortunately, I can't join you in person, but it's still my pleasure to welcome you all to today's Celebrate What's Right event, a conversation on adaptive reuse that will shed light on exciting projects, initiatives, and people who are building community through the built environment in Memphis. 
Adaptive reuse entails giving existing buildings new life and repurposing spaces with an eye towards sustainability that will reduce urban sprawl, increase downtown vibrancy, and preserve our city's history. Blue Cross has been part of the fabric of Memphis for years, and we're committed to our presence here. That's reflected in our community investments, including three Blue Cross Healthy Place projects at David Carnes Park in Whitehaven, Foot Park in South City, and the historic National Civil Rights Museum. Support for a number of local nonprofits organizations include Hope House, the Orpheum Theater, and New Memphis, and four Blue of Tennessee centers in the Memphis area housed inside reimagined unused spaces across the city that's now providing affordable, accessible care for local residents. I know today's discussion will be thought-provoking and will help generate new ideas and conversations about how we can all best utilize the assets we have in downtown Memphis to honor and support our community, all while working to preserve the environment. Blue Cross is proud to be a sponsor of the Celebrate What's Right series again this year, and we thank all of you who are investing in a renewed Memphis. I hope you enjoyed today's event. Thank you. Thank you again to, to Kevin and our, our friends over at Blue Cross. Um, so I'm gonna bring up our host. Um, I am delighted to introduce Brandon Harrington. Brandon is uh, a, a New Memphis fellow uh, from what year? You don't, he's like, I don't know, a while back. 20, no, that's not that long ago. 2019, um, but truly I think um, a, a very authentic advocate for redevelopment in Memphis, thinking about what the, not just the future of Memphis looks like, but thinking about how we can embrace the past. Um, so that's why we invited him here to host this conversation. He serves as a director of marketing and business development for Montgomery Martin Contractors and as the Urban Land Institute of Memphis's management committee chair-elect. Um, he is a lifelong Memphian with three awesome daughters and a pretty righteous wife. Please join me in welcoming Brandon to the stage. When I sent my bio, I didn't realize she was gonna read it verbatim. But my wife is pretty righteous, so that's awesome. All right, now I gotta get this uh, iPad to work. These, uh, only thing I use iPads now for is uh, to watch Bluey with my kids. So if y'all have kids, you'll understand. All right, so before we get started to talk about adaptive uh, reuse, I wanna first uh, thank New Memphis, thank Anna for inviting me to do this, and then I also just wanna talk about New Memphis for just a second. So I'm an LDI grad, and I would say that most everyone I know in Memphis that is doing anything remotely cool probably has gone through New Memphis. And if you haven't gone through New Memphis and you're doing something remotely cool, I would argue that what you do could be so much better if you went through New Memphis. Can I get a round of applause on that? Just, you know, a little, a little audience interaction. Because the, the great thing about New Memphis, when I did LDI, I thought it was just, I was gonna go through the Myers-Briggs, a couple of things, it's gonna get to know a little bit more about myself. But in actuality, what New Memphis teaches you is not only how to be a better version of yourself, but also how to work with other people, and all within the context of our city. And I think everybody in here is proof that you care about our city and you care about working with other people, because you wouldn't be at any of these, these organizations that are here today. So I would encourage you, if you haven't gone through New Memphis, go through New Memphis. It is worth every bit of time and effort that it takes to do it. And it's a ton of fun. You will... Um, our alum, the, the people that I went through in 2019, we still keep up. It's my network, and I, I just would encourage you to do it because it's, 
it really is worth every bit of time and effort you do it. So on to the topic of adaptive reuse. Anna sort of talked a little bit about what adaptive reuse, and I'm gonna title what I'm gonna say, and I'm not gonna speak very long, but I'm gonna title what I'm about to say is growing with soul. So defining adaptive reuse. Adaptive reuse is breathing life into old buildings. That's the most basic definition. Uh, we're sitting in a very sweet example of that, I would say. But others around town, the, the Commonwealth, the Crosstown, the Shrine, Tennessee Brewery, um, these buildings are amazing examples of the strictest definition of adaptive reuse. However, adaptive reuse is also outside of that strict definition. We are sitting in the Snuff District, and the Snuff District is a perfect example of adaptive reuse within the context of a neighborhood. Uh, South Main is another great example of neighborhoods that have changed and are now um, serving different uses. And so as the cultural realities of our society continue to shift, we're gonna see adaptive reuse even creep into other areas. So some of you may, may be seeing things in the news about um, you know, mobile workforce, more hybrid, remote, that type of thing. So what's happening is a lot of uh, office buildings are now vacant or are now underutilized. And so we're gonna be seeing a lot more adaptive reuse in the office market as well, where more modern buildings are gonna be used for multifamily and a series of mixed uses. That isn't changing. And so as we move forward, adaptive reuse is something we're gonna be seeing more and more. But as we move forward, I feel like we really need a strong vision for the future but we also need our feet firmly grounded in the past. And I'll tell you why, because this uh, stool, I'm going to sit and stand a hundred times. Um, I drove through Nashville last week, and I know we like to dump on Nashville, and Nashville's got some pretty awesome things. But I was, um, I was blown away by the sea of glass, right? Like Nashville has become a sea of glass in the past 10 or 15 years. It is uh, not the honky-tonk capital anymore. And all those cranes that everybody was uh, touting for years and years and years have built that sea of glass. But in my opinion, to, to some extent, it's created what I feel like is kind of a generic city, right? It's, it's a destination, it's still a fun place to go play, but it's, it's a generic city. And so how do we continue to grow as Memphis without losing our soul? And I think that adaptive reuse is the key to that, right? I mean, when we look around Memphis, our goal is to see as many of these old buildings preserved and to see as much of our neighborhoods preserved as we can because that's gonna be the key to Memphis continuing to grow but still having that soul. And so as far as our program today, um, we've got a bunch of people coming up here. When they, when they asked me to do this, I'll be honest with you, I, I thought sh when she said that you're gonna be the MC for a interview in the round, I thought I was gonna be MC with like a capital MC and I was gonna be the guy doing the music for uh, musical chairs. I didn't realize that uh, we were gonna be doing this, this relatively new concept of, of getting people to interview each other. So I'm gonna to try to walk us through that with a bunch of amazing people that are in the adaptive reuse space. Um, I've had the fortune of working with most of the people that are on this panel today, and I've worked with a lot of you sitting here um, through my work with Montgomery Martin Contractors and with my work with ULI. Um, but before we do that, I want to introduce a special guest, somebody that doesn't really need an introduction. Henry, could you go ahead and come up here? Raise your hand if you know who Henry Charlie is. All right, everybody knows who Henry Charlie is. All right, Henry, you can go ahead and take a seat. 
Henry, you've been, you've been doing this in Memphis for over, a little over 40 years. In many ways, are, are the godfather of downtown Memphis development, the shrine being one of your first uh, projects. And so, talk a little bit about why downtown? I mean, you invested in downtown before downtown was cool. Um, I'll tell a little story about that. Uh, in 76, when arguably downtown was at its nadir, uh, I was working for uh, a good uh, commercial real estate company, Percy Galbert and Son. I got a call one day, and the fellow on the other end says, uh, Henry, I represent a major manufacturing and distribution company that is considering Memphis. I'd like for you to find a couple of spots for us and meet uh, me and show me. And uh, I thought, wow, big money. Uh, so I go out to the airport and uh, get him, and I pull over into the right lane headed towards Airport Industrial Park. And uh, he said, if you don't mind, Henry, go left. And so I go under the downtown sign and go left. And on the way, he asked to see downtown. And uh, we go up and down, second, third, and whatnot. And he said, Henry, if you don't mind, take me back to the airport. You know, there's an early flight. I said, hell, I didn't even get to show you the sights I picked out. He said, well, I do so much of this that I have to have some shortcuts. And uh, the, the best, simplest way to evaluate a city is go look at its downtown. All of them are now, and remember this is roughly 50 years ago, are having a hard time. And if a city has its act together, its various groups working together and, and behaving in a smart way, that downtown shows it. If indeed you don't have that, it shows that too. And I'm sorry to say you haven't got it together yet. So uh, I thought, uh, well, hell, I, I know a little bit about, about real estate, and uh, uh, I, I wasn't even married at the time. I, I don't really have any dependents. If I screw up pretty bad downtown, nobody will care. Nobody. So uh, I'll give it a try, and uh, I set forth, you mentioned the shrine building, that's the first one I tried. And uh, I have pursued it since then in a rather single-minded way, bring people downtown. Downtown was called the Central Business District. Now, it, if you look closely, you'll see that's now at uh, Poplar and Ridgeway. But downtown is a complex, complete urban place. I, one other brief thing I learned, I learned about building downtown 
when I went to MUS in 1955, and I'd be out at, on the playgrounds at 6191 Park, and I saw Germantown develop, and it started with people. So that gave me some confidence. Get people living there, everybody else will follow. Didn't think I was going to be quiet, did you? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's great. I get to ask you just one question, and then you, you just take it and run with it. Um, all right, close with this. We have just a, a few seconds left or whatever. As you've seen downtown move forward in the past, you know, 40-plus years, now where we're at, why is it so important for Memphians to continue to invest in downtown? Same reason. I mean, you know, each of us lives in a discreet neighborhood, but we all share downtown. And we share downtown uh, in time, history, and in place. And uh, it, shared place pretty pretty important, because otherwise we're just discreet neighborhoods. Well, thank you, Henry. I could sit here and talk to you about this all day, but we have a, a panel of quite a few speakers. So thank you so much. I'll give Henry a hand. All right, Quincy Jones and Tony Pliciotti. All right, as they're coming up, I'll uh, give a short little bio. Quincy Jones is the Director of Programs for The Works Incorporated, a Memphis-based nonprofit community development uh, organization. Uh, he manages the Frazier's, uh, Frazier Neighborhood Initiative. Um, his biggest project right now that I think everybody knows about is uh, the Northside uh, Renaissance Project, which is 270,000 square feet um, of adaptive reuse of a, of a school. And Tony is working with him on that project. Tony is now the managing principal at Looney Rick's Kiss. Uh, obviously, everybody knows about LRK, a Memphis headquartered national design practice. Uh, but Tony's, Tony's thing is that adaptive reuse has been pretty much what he's been working on for most of his career. Uh, we were talking beforehand, and he said that he's, he figured out that he's probably been involved in almost, well, he said over 90. I'm going to back it up a little bit. Maybe it's like 85. 85 to 90% of the adaptive reuse projects in our city. He also told me that there is a tunnel under this building that goes to the building across the street. So afterwards, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take everybody on a tour of that tunnel. <laughs> so I'm going to turn it over to them and let them ask a couple questions, and I'm going to stop talking. Good morning, everyone. And good morning to you, Tony. Thank you. Let's talk a little bit about uh, adaptive reuse. I feel like I know you. Um, how did you get interested in adaptive reuse? Where did, where did it all come from? What piqued the interest? Well, I can say with absolute certainty, it was not my public speaking skills. So, <laughs> but in, in seriousness, uh, it started with a car, a 1966 Mustang GT. And it was high school. So I saved up my money from a soccer referee job and I went and bought this beautifully pristine car. And it may not come as a surprise, but teenage boys and fast cars do not mix well. I promptly destroyed this car. So uh, one day I'm sitting in physics class and the substitute teacher mentions that uh, her husband restores old Mustangs. 
And in the back of my head, there's this idea of, uh, I got one that needs restoring. So I ask, raise my hand, and, and will he help me? And she says, I don't know. Why don't you come by this weekend and, and see him? So I did. And this guy, George Howarth was his name, he made me the most insane offer I've ever seen. He said for $200, he would restore this car. Now there were strings attached. He said, you gotta buy all the parts. Okay, fine. Um, and you also have to do all the labor. <clears throat> and we spent six months every night of the week from six o'clock to 10 o'clock working on that car, taking it apart, putting it back together. And what I learned, what I appreciated out of that process was the life cycle of things, how human actions can destroy beauty, whether it's intentional, whether it's neglect, but human actions can also put it back together. Awesome. So million dollar question, uh, how fast were you going when you wrecked the car? <laughs> uh, no, no comment. <laughs> um, and so, how do you think that translated into your career and kind of, I guess, kind of professed that you would become an architect? Yeah, definitely. Um, what I recognize is, as a society, we have some predictable patterns. So anyone out there have kids? Anyone ever was a kid? Anyone ever recognize how long it takes a child to get bored with a new toy and want another new toy? I mean. Fast forward that to our lives today. What about your car? Are you happy with your old car? Would you rather have a new one? Um, your house, it's the same kind of question. So um, honestly, our, our neighborhoods, our buildings, our communities, um, all of these things play into the same kind of cycle. And what I've also realized is there's a counter cycle. And maybe this comes out of physics class. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. But um, I go back to a car analogy to try to explain it. So I drive a 25-year-old sport track. And we've got some people at a table over here who like to give me a hard time about driving that old beat-up truck. But the reality is we bought that truck when we had our third child because we couldn't fit all three car seats in the back of anything else. And so it has a special meaning. Every dent, every scratch, uh, every blemish, every beauty, beauty mark, uh, they all have a story behind them. And there's a, so there's a, a natural inherent human connection to that car that you don't get going and buying a mass produced F-150 off, off the parking lot. So the same thing's true of our buildings um, and our communities. There's a inherent human connection to place that is irreplaceable. It's why it's the difference in Memphis and Nashville. Absolutely, that's, that's a great point. And so, Tony, give us a, a good local example of adaptive reuse in effect. Well, I'm going to cheat here and I'm going to ask, has anybody in this room not been to Crosstown Concourse? I mean, it is, if you haven't been, please get by and see it. I mean, it is incredible. Uh, and it's, it is that example. Uh, the energy, the excitement, the optimism, the sense of possibility. Um, the diversity of people that are there, it is just an absolutely amazing story. And, um, you know, McLean will touch on it a little bit more when he gets up here, but what I would hope everybody here recognizes is Urban Land Institute has recognized Crosstown Concourse as one of the five best creative place-making opportunities, developments in the entire world. We're not talking about Tennessee.
Exactly. I mean, it, it's powerful, and that, that's what Memphis is about. So um, that's one example. So the other example, Quincy, is, and you know it well, Northside Square. So it's picking up where, where Crosstown left off. Uh, it is a mile due north of Crosstown, and you may or may not be familiar with it, but if you get a chance, drive by Valentine. This is an incredible building, 300, I call it 300,000 square feet. Um, and it will be a mixed-use community. It will have offices, it will have nonprofits, it will have health wellness opportunities, it will have arts and education, it will have sports. Uh, this thing is, um, is a decommissioned high school. And it has a gymnasium with three side-by-side -side basketball courts, column free. It has an 1,800-seat auditorium that has been abandoned. And Memphis Opera, uh, Ned walks in and he claps his hands on the stage and said, this is fabulous, the acoustics. We'd spend millions of dollars to replicate what you have here. So the whole idea is how you use that, how you put that back in service to the community. But the bigger story is how that building is, uh, and Quincy will touch on this when he talks more, but how that building is the anchor for the larger community. Absolutely. Um, one interesting thing, just jumping back to Sears Crosstown, just fascinating fact about it. How many people know that there are eight other buildings in this country that are just like the Sears Crosstown Tower that were also redeveloped across the country? That's a fascinating fact about that building, and we're so just great thing to have one in Memphis like that. It's a great hell to our city. Yeah. And so, Tony, what would you leave us with today? I guess the, the, the one thing that I would, would love to really express and get across is adaptive reuse is not really limited to a singular building. Northside's a larger adaptive reuse of the entire neighborhood. I mean, it takes into account the people who have lived there all their lives, how we help them restore their houses, even if they can't afford to do it themselves because they're part of the community. The value of their house is every bit as important to the house next door as what that person invested in the house next door. How do we take the natural area around it? So there is a, um, yeah, it's a floodplain. It's for uh, the floodplain for Lick Creek and the city manages it as a liability. It's a place that we throw tens of thousands of dollars to Bush Hog to pick up the old tires every year. It's three quarters the size of, of the public section of Shelby Farms. Why can't it be an asset to that community? Why can't it be something more? What if we overseed it with wildflowers and let it grow wild? Don't mow it. We save money, we create a place that the people enjoy. So adaptive reuse can be so much more. Um, and just thinking about it even in terms of, of people, uh, somebody going back to school, bettering themselves, somebody changing professions, uh, you know, any Rocky movie you've seen. I mean, that's, that's basically the storyline, right? Um, or any Hallmark movie. I mean, I walk in and my girls are always watching these things, and it's the same story over and over. It's somebody that's in a bad place, and they're looking for this one spark, this one idea, this one thing, whatever it is, that real, helps them realize their potential. So how do we get there? A child with a cardboard box. You know, they turn that box that we think of as trash into an airplane or a submarine or a fort. So we're all inherently born with that vision. But somewhere as we mature, as we grow through life, we either put blinders on ourselves or we allow other people to put blinders on. So how do we remove that? How do we do for each other what George Howard did with me for you know, restoring that car? How can we, we change the community? When you drive down Winchester Avenue, how can you look at that how can you see those empty uh, retail buildings, the big boxes, and envision what they might actually be? How can they be an asset to the community again?
Wonderful. Well, thank you all. You give them a round of applause. And now, in the spirit of the round, Quincy's going to step off, and I'd like to welcome to the stage McLean Wilson. So McLean is the principal of Kimmons Wilson Companies, and he's also the president of Valor Hospitality Partners, uh, as well as the chief investment officer of Kimmons Wilson Hospitality Partners, a hotel fund. But for the better part of the past decade, he's probably the, the most well-known for the 1.5 million square foot and $250 million Sears Crosstown redevelopment project, and now known as Crosstown Concourse. So I'm gonna let uh, Tony ask McLean some questions now. It's much, it feels much better in this seat. <laughs> So, thanks, McLean. Um, so, starting off, what brought you to appreciate adaptive reuse? Um, I, I think the, the quick answer um, is the aversion to suburbia, but um, I'll actually get a little bit more deep. I think a lot of adaptive reuse um, has to do with a lot of my personal beliefs um, and maybe a little philosophical. Uh, and it's really this. Um, uh, this feeling that I have that the, the spiritual world is actually not um, separated from the physical world. They're actually very intermeshed and in that enmeshment becomes this mystery and this nostalgia and the steric building that Stuart's going to talk about. I mean, how, how many of y'all want to just go in the building and just be um, and just to experience it? Um, that's this mystery and that's uh, was talked about a little bit what you said earlier about your, your car. There's a sense where um, there's something more um, at play than just the bricks um, of, of a building. And so um, if, if the material world and the spiritual world are constantly playing together, and if the spiritual world is hidden and can be perfectly revealed in uh, the material world, then that's what adaptive reuse is. And so um, obviously that's very personal and, and, and a bit philosophical for me, but it means that, that spaces have profound meaning. Um, and if they have profound meaning, then a, 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 um, approaching them with utmost honor is something that um, I feel uh, is, is my responsibility. Um, you know, we're, we're on this life for a trajectory, I think a building and, and places have that same type of trajectory, um, but we have the opportunity to actually take a beautiful piece of the past um, Respect it, honor it, uh, but 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 think about um, that which can be for the future. Um, and so there's a stewardship element to it as well. In, in the same vein that um, myself and my cousins and my brother work in our business, thinking about creating enduring value for multiple generations. I think this is the same attitude that 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 we have with adaptive reuse and looking at buildings of what you know we we are we're an inflection point on the history um, or on, on the trajectory of this building or this place, or this community, and um, how can we think about things for the future that, that create that enduring value. I love it. I love the, the word meaning and stewardship. If you play off of those, how do you use those in context with Crosstown Concourse or Central Station? Yeah. Um, uh, Scott Morris, who I'm sure a lot of y'all know, he's the um, founder of Church Health. He, he will tell you that you can't be faithful alone. And what he's talking about really is um, relationships and people. Um, and that was uh, spoken about um, earlier today, just about downtown, um, what Henry told us about it. Uh, you know, when he looked at Germantown getting built, it was people. 
And so really through the vein of Crosstown and Central Station, we thought about it from the standpoint of uh, human interaction um, and relational development. I mean, we talked about Crosstown as being a neighborhood. I mean, that's exactly how we thought about it. Um, and, you know, in thinking about how to, I mean, if, if people are the hub of activity and if, if relationships are truly what's gonna be transformative for our communities, then how do we make these buildings approachable and then how do we allow people to interact in such a way where relationships do get uh, developed? And, um, uh, you know, this, but LRK was very instrumental in helping us in both buildings think through um, kind of a rubric or a paradigm that we um, uh, use as a filter for thinking about our development, and that's this urban magnets concept that was popularized by an architect firm in Vancouver, um, and we use both of them. And, and in, in essence, the quick kind of cliff notes on it, um, as you think about your community or your building or whatever it is that you have, um, and, the, and the, the five urban magnets um, are consumption, which is like retail, production, education, arts and entertainment, and then a unique built environment. And so the combination of people and these five things are what create a place that's special and a place that um, can, uh, can provide that, that meaning. Uh, and, and then like with Crosstown, we thought about what are the components of the Crosstown neighborhood or the building itself that can be conducive to consumption, production, arts, entertainment, education, um, and uh, it is a unique built place. But that's why it was important for us to have a coffee shop that also roasted coffee beans. And at Central Station, that's why we have a vinyl bar where you don't just go and order a drink, you actually go order a drink and you see production happening, which is a DJ playing, um, playing a record. It's, it's all these, these nuances of details that allow for um, uh, the opportunity for people to engage to develop relationship um, because, again, I think that's where um, adaptive reuse allows for the opportunity for, for kind of real community transformation. Um, so I, I do, last thing on that, like, I believe that um, meaning is not created, it's discovered. And so thoughtfully laying out um, a building or community in, in a way where uh, individuals can discover things about themselves, discover things about about the other, um, then it, versus having a development idea that's kind of done in isolation that has only a singular purpose. If you can create a little bit more ambiguity, a little bit more mystery, um, there's self-discovery with uh, uh, with how people engage spaces, um, and that way you're forever creating something. Um, enduring and, and neat for multiple generations if you kind of blur the edges a little bit and allow for more than just kind of one opportunity to experience one thing, um, if that makes sense. So they kind of have a chance to make it their own, yeah. put their fingerprint. Yeah, yeah it's beautiful. What, um, knowing that you've, you've done a lot of development, both new and adaptive reuse, uh, are there specific challenges to adaptive reuse that you've encountered? I think the, um, for the buildings that I have worked on, I think it was really important to um, have, a, have um, more meaning to it than just for what I want to do. Um, and so the, the purpose is kind of for the other. Um, and 
The reason for that is because if it was just for my own benefit, then I think I would have given up a long time ago. Um, but when you do things for the other and Crosstown is for the neighborhood and um, the people involved for Central Station, for Henry and, and our investors and the South Main community for our, our business, it was for our um, uh, family office community. Um, it allows for uh, you to really do the hard work because adaptive reuse is hard. Now there's, there's like historic tax credits and there's financing components that um, assist because the, it, it is more challenging, it takes a lot longer, sometimes it's more expensive. Um, but for all the reasons I mentioned earlier, it actually creates a, a better community and a better opportunity for um, people to interact. And if people are joining together in relationship, then that's that's everything. The two, you're about to cut me off. Well, you're you're fine. I want you to finish your thought. Yeah, finish your thought. The the, um, the two uh, the two most special moments I think for me. Um, one for Crosstown, one for Central Station. Crosstown was opening day when um, we just looked out on, it wasn't about you know the fact that we were open. Um, it was seeing the diversity of people, like seeing all of Memphis come together. I really like, like, like I'm looking at right now, this is special. Um, and that was, that was amazing. Like we wanted the building to be approachable. Um, and with Central Station, I would say on any number of our DJ events, like it's so awesome to see the number of people in the music world and, and various uh, uh, communities in, in Memphis come together and, and just appreciate Memphis music for what it is. Is it okay if I cut you off yeah. now? <laughs> Yeah, because well, what y'all don't realize is that I have a very strict timekeeper that is giving me hand signals while I'm... <laughs> All right, give these guys a round of applause. All right. Tony, you're finished. Now, Ashley Cash, you come on up. You're the next contestant. So Ashley is the uh, director for the Division of Housing and Community Development for the City of Memphis. She's also... Uh, the chair for the Women's Leadership Initiative for the Urban Land Institute. And I'm going to give us a little quick plug while she's coming up just for Urban Land Institute. After you go through your new Memphis program, uh, you have to become a member of Urban Land Institute. Um, it's a great organization. And so um, as far as what Ashley has accomplished in her career thus far, I think one of the coolest things is being over so much of what happened with Memphis 3.0. So g give her a round of applause on that real quick because I, I, I think... I think everyone in here is now benefiting from that comprehensive plan. It was the first comprehensive plan in what, almost 40 years for, this, for the city? So yeah, it's pretty impressive. All right, I'll shut up and let y'all talk. All right, good to see Ashley. You too, thank you. So um, what Ashley found out two weeks ago was that in four years, she has a great avenue to start running for mayor. No. <laughs> Uh, so for you, all those who don't know, Paul Young was CEO of HCD. Um, That's right. So um, ground us a little bit in the mission of HCD. I had the opportunity to interact with HCD for, for many, many years. Um, and I know the work that y'all do is incredibly important to our city. Um, it's really hard work. Um, it is not... Um, not for the faint of heart, but, but ground maybe the, the group here and what HCD is and does and, and what its missional uh, bent 
Yeah, sure. Thanks for the opportunity. Um, and so one, one great thing we get to do is we get to be involved in uh, projects like Northside, projects like Crosstown, these really major developments. But essentially, uh, HCD, Housing and Community Development, we aim to build stronger, thriving neighborhoods by working with community members, by working with organizations, really looking at ways we can strengthen um, home ownership. Uh, we try to provide pathways to home ownership through down payment assistance. We try to uh, promote and advocate for affordable housing. We're working now to think about how we can support middle-income housing. Uh, HCD did that in the 90s uh, pretty successfully, but ran out of money. <laughs> so um, we're just trying to think about how we can do that. And then what we're here to talk about today really is our work around community development. So how do we bring places back to life? Uh, there's a lot of opportunity to create new uh, buildings, and that's wonderful, but then there is also within our communities, especially the ones that we serve, um, a lack of uh, investment in a lot of times, a lack of maybe not willingness, but you know, it just doesn't pencil out for um, the development to a certain type of development to occur. And so we try to bridge that gap with community development work, with different projects to really say, how can we, instead of uh, destroying the fabric of the community, how can we bring back those buildings, bring those buildings back to life, uh, show some hope? for the neighborhoods and the community members around it, and then be an example or a blueprint for other community groups, kind of like Crosstown was, now Northside is, um, but really being a blueprint for uh, community members, young kids to say, wow, that you know, we, we can have that in our neighborhood. I was in a different meeting with the older gentleman, um, and he was, he was almost in tears, and he said, I never thought this type of thing would happen in, in my community. He was from Orange Mound community and we're working on a community land trust there. And so he just was thinking about how he never would have imagined those type of opportunities would come um, into his community. So it's really exciting work. It's, it's difficult. Um, we never have enough money, even though we, we receive a lot of money, similar to what you were talking about, but uh, really excited to, to be here and do that. So um, I'd love to use a, a, a current development that you're working on as an example. Uh, it's a one of the most beautiful buildings in Memphis. I toured a long time ago. Um, yeah. But tell us a little bit about uh, what, what's happening at Melrose. Yeah, so we are working on, uh, we call it historic Melrose. Some people know it as old, as old Melrose um, High School, or Old Melrose School, I should say, on Dallas Avenue, once again in Orange Mound community. The school was built in 1918. Uh, rich history, beautiful building, beautiful bricks. Uh, places where I couldn't even imagine going to school and sitting in a building uh, that great. Um, it was school for uh, first grade through 12th grade. Over time, a new high school was built, and so they took 10th through 12th grade, and then the elementary students soon followed, and you were left with um, a school building that just was too big for the amount of population that it had. And so it closed down in the 80s. Um, Around the 90s, there was an effort to demolish the building, say, we want to do something here. We've got this blighted building. At that point, it had only been 10 years, but I think at the time, the Parks Department sort of helped rally around community and support that. And then again, in um, around 2016, there was another thought about what can we do with this building? It costs too much to redevelop. We don't have the funds to do it, and it is a, it's a blight on our community. It wasn't just a vacant building, uh, but it was deteriorating, it was open, so people were squatting in there, just all kinds of things you can think of and imagine when you think about blight. 
Um, and so really through a lot of community advocacy and a willing administration, uh, we were able to not demolish the building, save the building. Uh, we did a temporary activation there just to think about what it could be. We heard from the community and we said within our resources, what can the city bring? And so we are redeveloping that now into a library and a genealogy center. It's three stories. Uh, the first floor will be a library and genealogy center. The second and third floors will be senior housing in a future phase. And then we're hoping to have some more affordable uh, apartments around there. But it's, um, it's been a labor of love that will be open at the end of this year. So we're really excited about that building. Um, and it's a huge, huge transformation. I mean, the windows I think are going in now. It looks amazing. We've got drone footage that looks right. You can see the roof because I did not get on the roof, but I did <laughs> take a tour. Um, but really, it, it's an amazing building and it's a testament to uh, the community, because I think the community also could have said, okay, we don't want blight here, just tear it down, just give us something else. Um, but really they didn't say that, they said, not only we believe, but we are going to force you, with our support, um, to do something with this building, to keep it as a free and open public municipal use as it was before, but we know the school won't work, and so we're just super excited about that. I did want to talk about the cost. Uh, it's, it is expensive, it is complicated, um, it's, it's, it's costly, uh, I'm, I'm grateful that we're on our time schedule, but we've got, I think, three, maybe four different funding sources in that one project just to make it work, and so you really have to be creative, um, you have to be committed to adaptive reuse, you have to understand why you're doing it, and as you go through um, the building, really think about, we, we definitely always want to be good stewards of money, but where can you recreate those unique touches um, to make the space come back alive. And so for our furniture, um, we, we're a little bit over budget on where, where our furniture should be. But we thought it was important not to put sort of flimsy plastic, you know, things that you can see in any old library. We wanted to put something unique to the area. And so we said, this is a place worth investing a little bit more. So those types of things, those types of projects, it's really exciting to be a part of. You've got time for one more question. Okay, okay great. Um, <laughs> Tell me how you think about, I mean, obviously Memphis has a lot of need in a lot of communities. How do you, how do y'all think about um, prioritization? Yeah, um, it's a challenge. It's a challenge because you want to, uh, you want to work everywhere. You want to be responsive to all things. Really, I think we try to support places that have some action activity going on. That could be uh, from another, uh, it could be where some development is already happening, it could be where there's a really engaged community group, um, it could be a place where, you know, you just see something happening sort of across the way and you want to steal some of that momentum, or steal is the right word, but you want to um, pull and expand some of that momentum. And so I'm really just trying to think about that. We do rely on our comprehensive plan, our Memphis 3.0 plan, to look at the anchors and say where is there already some activity, where is there an institution um, that can be a beacon for the rest of the community. But it, it's a little bit organic, I wish it was more scientific, but it, it, it really ends up being where there's activity, action, and some opportunity to um, create something. It's easier to be a part of something than to go off by myself and, and try to build something and say, okay, one, they're not coming, and two, I can't do it alone. Thank you for your good work, Ashley. Thank you. Yes, let's give them a round of applause. All right. Go ahead and ask uh, Stuart Harris to come to the stage. I feel a little bit like I'm the moderator for a, a mayor debate. You know, <laughs> I got to cut him off. 
All right, so Stuart is the founder of Constellation and a co-founder of Black Bay Global Advisory. He has nearly 20 years of commercial and residential real estate experience. experience. Um, prior to Constellation, he was with Southern Sun uh, Asset Management and, and a few other entities before that. Um, Stuart and I know each other because we both have 15-year-old uh, daughters in school <laughs> together. And so we can bond over the consistent uh, and regular drama that it occurs in our <laughs> lives a on a daily basis. So no I think everybody in here, though, knows Stuart at this point uh, because of the uh, word steric. So I'm going to be quiet. And uh, Thanks for having me. Well, good. Well, thank you. Well, Stuart, I'm so um, happy to be sharing a stage with you and asking you some, some good questions. And so my first question, tell us a little bit about the Steric Building pro uh, Development Project. How did you get involved with it and what excited you? Yeah, so um, 20 years ago, roughly, I, I was a landlord rep for C.B. Richard Ellis in the downtown office. And our job was to go try to find people to, to, to office and spaces downtown. And so I was going into Hunter North, Maine and trying to steal attorneys from there and put them in <laughs> Peabody Place or, um, or in uh, One Commerce Square. They didn't want to pay twice as much and not be able to smoke cigarettes in their office. Oh. So I was unsuccessful <laughs> in that. <laughs> But I, I found myself entering a lot of these buildings and walking by them and just experiencing life downtown, going to a little tea shop for lunch mm -hmm. or running into people on Main Street. And I was like, this is, this is the way we ought to, to live mm -hmm. in community. And I also fell in love with just the buildings themselves. I mean, for whether uh, we didn't have institutional capital coming in in Memphis or whether we just got lazy, we left some great old buildings yeah. un, unattended and now we have a great stock of them. And I consider Steric to be uh, one of the best ones. It's a, you know, it's a late 1920s build. It's incredible, the structure, the architecture, everything about it. It's you know, super yeah. important for the Memphis skyline. Great. And so just thinking about the building, which the building in itself is um, massive, but also talk a little bit about um, the area around it. How important is it to focus on not just the building as itself, but also the area yeah. surrounding it? Yeah, if you, if you threw a dart at the map of downtown and looked for it, tried to hit the bullseye, the steric is right in the middle of downtown. It's, it's the dead center. Uh, and that center is not full of activity. It's not destitute, but it's also, uh, it has a lot of opportunity. If you think about the anchor organizations that are around there, you've got the YMCA, you've got the ballpark, you've got Visible Music College, you've got downtown elementary school. But Steric and the neighboring area can act as really important connective tissue between the investment that's been made on the riverfront and the edge district. So we're really looking at kind of a holistic development. We've bought some additional land near the Steric as accessory companion parcels. So uh, we've gotten, we've kind of assembled um, two or three acres near there, including our investment in the Commonwealth Building, which was formerly the Hickman Building, uh, which we finished back in 2018, 2019. I want to mention one other thing. Uh, when you asked about what I'm most excited about with Steric, uh, if you look at the Memphis skyline, never in its history have the high rises of the skyscrapers, so to speak, ever been mixed use. So if you think about what in a few years, if, if there, you see a, a redeveloped Hunter North Main and Steric, and you're driving into downtown or you already live downtown and you look on the skyline and you see lights 24 seven, what does that say about your community it says it's alive, you know, and we've not had that before. So I think it's a great opportunity. Yeah, I think they're great, um, great developments and really bring that vibrancy back to the downtown area. I guess thinking about vibrancy, um, 
so the lights were on maybe did you did you light up the steric and, and and tell us a little bit about that why was that important it was just a you know these projects take forever and so uh, we wanted to take the opportunity now to do something small that just says to the, the community hey maybe this is a glimpse of what you could see in the future because this i mean these, these this is a years-long yeah. project right yeah. and so if we can do something that just shows uh, the community, what it could look like in the future. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Anything else you want to share? Um, I just say one one thing that I, I know is on a lot of people's minds is uh, around public safety, and I think there's uh, a, a the best way to to solve issues of crime and public safety is to people a place, right? And I think in you know downtown, if you looked at downtown in 2019 versus now. We've had you know, COVID, there was a lot of momentum before, we've had a little bit of a setback that we're pushing back through. But instead of people saying, I'm not going downtown because it's not safe, we need to shift that to I'm going downtown to make it safe. Mm -hmm. So um, I just wanted to mention that because yeah. I know that kind of stuff's on people's minds. Yeah, so. that's great. Yeah. Thank you, Stuart. Sure. All right, let's give them a round of applause. Thank you, Ashley. Can I ask Tanya, Tanya Meeks to come on stage? You are. So Tanya is with Urban Land Institute. So Tanya and I have become best friends over the past year or so. Uh, we've gotten to travel together. We've gotten to work on a lot of really fun issues around affordable housing, uh, DEI, different things in the, in the community involving ULI. But she's also been in our community for over 15 years as a consultant, uh, local government strategist, um, pretty much just doing everything awesome. I mean, Tanya's one of my favorite people in the world now. And so, once again, I'm going to be quiet and let y'all ask each other some questions. This is a rare moment where Tanya actually doesn't have to act as MC too much. I love it. That, this is, that's <laughs> what you, you do. T can you tell us a little bit about, for, for those that don't know what ULI is, tell them a bit about ULI and you know, its mission and why it's important to Memphis. Sure. So ULI, um, sorry, I'm a bit loud. But ULI is uh, a nonprofit membership entity dedicated to um, the building the future uh, through targeted programming. Um, through that, uh, we look to do, I should say, we look to do that through three mission priorities, um, sustainability, DEI, and affordable housing. Um, you, you just uh, mentioned DEI and that you have an emphasis on, uh, emphasis on that. Can you tell us a bit about how the efforts around DEI practically impact those it intends to serve and Memphis? Oh, that's a big one. <laughs> I think the jury is still out on that. Um, when ULI decided to take up that as a mission priority, we recognized, you know, well before um, the things that happened or the activities that happened the summer of 2020 uh, around George Floyd, we recognized early on that there had to be much more conversation around inclusion. Um, and we are still, as a international entity trying to figure that out. But what we're trying to do is host conversations, programming, see how we can thread through the general programming we have, how we, how we expand on inclusion and how we have more conversations around inclusion and how we have a bigger vision about what DEI looks like in the built space. We don't know yet, mm. but we look to have those conversations to see what the future looks like around DEI. That's, uh, that's really important. They also, uh, the audience may not know this, but the, the ULI has the READY program. Mm -hmm. Can you tell them a bit about sure. READY and then any other ways that you may have tweaked, you know, young leaders and other things? 
Absolutely. So the four signature programs for um, ULI that we adapt here, that we pull down from the national entity to adapt here on the national, I mean, on the local level, are the Women's Leadership Institute, which Ashley chairs and heads up, um, the Real Estate Div uh, Diversity uh, Initiative. I always get that mixed up. People ask me what those, what those acronyms mean. Um, that's READY. Many of you probably have heard of READY. Um, and we also have Urban Plan, which Quincy is helping to, uh, to relaunch here in Memphis, uh, which is around planning, of course, and, uh, and we have the Young Leaders Group. Um, the Young Leaders Group has probably been the most active of the programs that we've had, and, you've, and if you've received emails, the million emails that I send out a month <laughs> relative to our programming, much of our programming is centered around that because what we found is that in this, in this built space, in this built environment, as we look to the future, we look to shape the future, what we're finding is that we don't have a lot of young folks involved in that conversation, and a lot of young folks engaged in the things that happen in the built space to, to, to guide that conversation. And I thought, you know, what better way to do that? I'm not a young person anymore. I know I look young, but I'm not a young person anymore, so I thought the best way to do that was to activate the folks here locally to start creating those conversations to talk about those things. And it's been things vastly different from what I would have expected um, folks, younger folks in the built environment to have a conversation on. We have a few, I think we have a couple of YLG members here. I won't put you on the spot, but <laughs> I think they would agree that they've came up with some, they, they've come up with some things in the last few months mm -hmm. that are vastly different from what us older folks think that younger folks want to talk about relative to the built mm -hmm. really future. Good. Speaking of, of opinions and hearing voices, I think about Crosstown and how much work went in way, I mean, years before any construction happened to pave the way with the community and hearing voices and getting input. What do you think the impact is if we don't get those kind of voices in, on adaptive reuse projects? I think the impact is um, we remain stayed as a city um, relative to the built environment. We don't get the opportunity to allow voices early on to help shape what the city looks like. And we continue to have sort of all the things that are happening around the disruptive things that we dislike about the city. That's, that's how I will diplomatically say it. But I think we'll continue to have high rates of crime. I think we'll continue to have high rates of disgruntledness in the city without those, without that inclusiveness and without those voices early on. And not just the community engagement and those voices on the back end of projects. I think that we must Think about community engagement, community input, community voices much early on in our development processes, in our development projects. Um, early on in, in even how you shape or think about in, a, in sort of a woo-woo philosophical way, you know, if we want to build here, if we want to develop here, what's the philosophical reasons for why we want to build here, why we want to reuse here, why we want to adapt, what do we want to adapt this new building for, what kind of community we want to have relative to this building. I know I'm going way off on a tangent here, but these are some of the like sort of backing up a little bit and having those philosophical conversations about inclusion, about engagement, about how those voices impact, how we even think about before we even get into designing and sketching and, and um, planning for neighborhoods. How do we think about how do we want to build? How do we want to reuse, if that makes sense? Thank you so much. Yeah. All right, let's give him a round of applause. All right. Thanks, Stuart. I'm kicking Stuart off, and I'm bringing Quincy back up. Hey, Quincy. I've been looking forward to having this conversation with Quincy. We've known each other for years. Yes. Mostly via Zoom, via Zoom, but we finally get to have a conversation in person. Um, 
Quincy, since we know you are with the works, uh, over with Rashawn and lots of other great folks working over there, what is the works role in adaptive reuse? Wow. Um, it's pretty large. Um, and so we talked earlier um, about the redevelopment of Northside Square, and so I'll touch on that a little bit as how that relates to adaptive reuse. So Northside, for those of you who may be non-native Memphians or don't know this, since I'm a native Memphian and did not know this until I started working on this project, Northside High School was the largest uh, building that MSCS or Memphis Shelby County Schools had at its time. It is 270,000 square feet that was redeveloped and that was developed initially in the 1960s um, as a Votech school. And so it had a shooting range in the basement when we obtained it. It had um, four, excuse me, eight um, car openings, carports, where people could learn mechanics. And so just a multitude of uses, an 1,800-seat auditorium that Tony talked about earlier, just a massive building um, that we have the, um, the ability and the, the great pleasure of being able to change and transform that entire community. Fantastic. So piggybacking on that a bit, you got to it before I did. Um, what's your role with the works, and also what's your role with that project? And so my role with the works is the director of programs, and so that's a unique title. Um, but what it means is I am responsible for all of the redevelopment that is primarily occurring in the Klondike community, which is where Northside was located. So another fun fact um, is that Klondike is the second or first oldest, you know, we debate that with the folks in Orange Mound, uh, African-American community in this city. And so Klondike is also one of the poorest zip codes in the city of Memphis, um, 38117, I believe it is. Um, and so this is the first time that we have seen a private uh, development or a development that didn't have federal dollars, meaning it wasn't Hope 6 or it's not uh, a choice neighborhood grant, go into one of the most impoverished neighborhoods in this city. And so what my role entails is monitoring that development, making sure that we work together with our architects, LRK, as owners, making sure that we keep that on track and that we carefully, and I emphasize carefully, change that community for the betterment of the people within, which involves making a connection with the community, making sure that they understand and that they take a part a part of a strong part and a meaningful part in the redevelopment and the reinvestment of that community fantastic so this question I, I, I wasn't scripted for this question but I'm curious to know how is Memphis 3.0 aligned with the work um, happening with that project absolutely so there were many community-based plans that came as a result of 3.0 which our good friend Ashley Cass oversaw and so <laughs> You know, there, there's a thing called strategic entry, strategic entry when you go into a neighborhood. And so the thought process, process behind strategic entry is that we should go into communities, um, hopefully with welcome arms if we're doing the right things, but first you have to go in with an open ear. And so relying on that plan and seeing what the people in that neighborhood, and so talking to the local community development corporations, talking to the neighborhoods and the block leaders and seeing what they wanted to see in their neighborhood. I mean, we can think that we have the right answers, we can think that we know what we're doing, but we have to talk to the people first. And so with a neighborhood like Klondike, which is very historic, you've obviously got a lot of opinions. You know, sometimes people don't necessarily believe in development, 
But the overriding factor is, is that we know, and everyone knows, having a 270,000 vacant, square foot vacant building in the middle of a neighborhood, an impoverished neighborhood, is a problem. And so we work closely with those people in that neighborhood to get to understand them, to find out their wants, their needs. What should we do? How can we partner with them, bring them along, and how do we do it? Yep, yep. And I think that goes in line with my next question. Uh, I think it's related to how does the works uh, work in general in protecting communities from displacement, uh, particularly relative to um, housing attainability. I absolutely, think. Yeah. absolutely. So the work along with some of our partners, uh, we control just right at about a third of the lots in the Klondike community. And so those lots are gonna be designated under what's called a community land trust. And community land trusts are popping up over a lot of urban areas across our country now. And what they do, they allow residents to designate and have right of first refusal on select properties in this neighborhood that are part of that land trust to ensure that those property and those parcels stay affordable. That could be affordable for um, rental housing, for ownership housing, it goes into the business community as well. And so that what that what, what that does is it gives the people in the neighborhoods a legitimate buy-in because they're all members under this land trust kind of operating like a land bank. And so that's what we're working on through our team of lawyers that work in-house at the works. Awesome. Um, so relative to that as well, how um, challenging is it for this concept of adaptive re reuse and all the work, the general work that the works does uh, in these communities and neighborhoods, how difficult is it? What are the challenges relative to thinking about things in terms of adaptive reuse, yet carrying through with all of the programmatic mission priorities that must be pushed forth? Thank you, Tanya. That's a great question. Um, so there are a number of challenges anytime you go into a neighborhood and try and redevelop a structure that was designated and meant to be something different. So in this case, we're taking a school that was developed in the 1960s. And if any of you have ever seen Northside, you can see it right there from 240. There are not a lot of windows. And so we've got our great architects, again, at LRK, who are helping us rethink how we reconfigure this building that will have 42 affordable apartments, it will have a school, it will have restaurants, it will have offices, a law firm. Um, so we've got major users uh, for the gymnasium as well as the 1800 seat auditorium which is going to be revamped and reused to bring programs into the community. Um, but there are many challenges because you have to carefully think about it. And again, this is a 76 million dollar project. And so just the transformation and how do we think it out, how do we build it out, how how do we deal with the physical structures that are in place, which are literally these physical barriers as you try to transform that building? But then there's a flip side of that. I mentioned that Klondike was one of the poorest neighborhoods in Memphis. It has an extremely crime level, high crime level. And so we've had 30 plus break-ins inside that building, even though we've spent about a million dollars taking everything out of that building and so it has no more systems the electrical the mechanical the plumbing is all gone but they've got to break in to figure out that there's nothing inside to steal and so these are the challenges of what we're trying to do in just this one inner city neighborhood as we go in with our thought process fantastic is there anything else about the work or the work that the works does 
see what I did there, what the word does, that you'd like lifted up in this conversation that we're sort of missing? Yeah, in general, and not just with the works. Um, for those of you who don't know, the works is the largest community development corporation in this city that primarily started out focusing on affordable housing, but obviously we've expanded into mixed use, into transforming communities, and so on and so forth. But I would like to ask everybody to believe in Memphis. I think that's the focus of adaptive reuse, is that there has to be this vision that is hopefully coming to life through the people who are doing the work. You know, Choose 901 is more than just a cliche. It's something that we actually have to do by making a decision to invest in our community and making a decision that we're going to be there for the betterment of our city. So just believe in Memphis. Awesome. All right, give them a round of applause. All right, I'm gonna ask all of our speakers to come back up and we're gonna open it up for questioning. Um, while they're coming up, uh, we're gonna move some furniture around apparently. Um, I've been sitting here thinking as I've been listening to each uh, panelist is like, what is, the, what is the thread, I mean, besides the obvious, adaptive reuse, but what is the thread that kind of ties all of these people? And the, th the thing that I've come up with is that uh, most people look at an old abandoned building and they turn around and run. They think crime, they think unsafe. And, you know, I've gotten the opportunity to crawl around in some of these buildings beforehand, you know, as the, you know, working with the contractor. And it's hard to see the vision sometimes. And so I, I kind of feel like the thread that, that ties all of y'all is that you're all a little bit crazy. Because <laughs> all of you look at an old abandoned building or a, or a neighborhood, an underutilized neighborhood, and, and you think, you know, yes, I'd like to spend the next... I don't know, 10 years of my life working on this. Uh, that seems crazy, but the results speak for themselves. And so uh, I'm gonna ask one question and then we're gonna open it up to the floor. There'll be some people walking around with microphones for y'all to ask. Um, I'm just gonna ask, why do you do it? And I'm opening this up to any of you. Because it makes a difference. Because if it was easy, anybody would do it. So somebody needs to step up and take that first step. Anyone else? Yeah, I would say I've just got a passion for Memphis. I grew up here, um, have lived in several different neighborhoods, and I have seen the rise and fall of many of those neighborhoods. And so um, to be a part of uh, change and transformation is huge. And I was thinking this, I wanted to say it, but I didn't get a chance to, but now I'm back, I can say this. Um, but so I'm in a great station in life at this time. It, it, things have changed over time, but I, not to make anybody feel guilty, but if you think about from a newborn to age like 25, if every day you're playing outside in vacant lots, you're passing a vacant school building to go to your school, you're getting groceries out of a corner store that has people outside, bars on the window. Just imagine what that does to your psyche over time. And so you don't, you really don't, um, and I've said hope a bunch of times, but you know, you really don't have hope in your built environment. You don't see the benefit. And Tanya, to your point, you're not gonna come to this because you're like, I know what my built environment is. I know that I can't change it. Nobody will come change it. And so I think until we uh, go into these neighborhoods and show 
what that change and that transformation can look like, show that we care. We have the funds to do it, even though we say we may not. We can um, collaboratively. And so I think we just have to think about that. It's not about um, us or our mission or what we're doing, but it's really about the people, whether they're children or older adults or somewhere in between, um, who are experiencing this day to day, who don't have a lot of control over what's around them, how we're making communities and areas better for them. All right, anyone else before I open it up to the floor? I think the question was why we do it. Mm -hmm. that, okay, so I'm a, I'm a self-proclaimed guilty as accused nerd. <laughs> I went to school to study city planning, and you know how some people go to school and then do something totally different from their major? Well, I did the opposite. So I went to undergrad to study city planning, and I went to graduate school to study city planning, and so I knew coming out of college that I was gonna be a city planner. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm a self-proclaimed city nerd. I tell people all the time, I've never seen a bad neighborhood. I've seen neighborhoods that have challenges, but I've never seen a bad neighborhood, and so that's why I do it. Great answers. All right, we want to open it up to the floor. If you'll just raise your hand, they'll come around to uh, to acknowledge you. The price point of adaptive reuse versus uh, demolish and rebuild. Like you're talking about Melrose, a 1918 building. I mean, it's got to violate every, cur every current building code on the books. So when do you all make that decision? Okay, it's too much to use adapt or reuse, so we're going to demolish and rebuild something new and then engage the community in that respect. Every situation is different. So the first piece is you come in with an open mind. You listen to the people around it who have lived with it, who, who know it. You explore it. I mean, one of the things that this changed uh, over the years, Crosstown Concourse, we had to go physically measure that building with tape measures. There were no plans. Today, you can, have, you can hire somebody who'll come in and 3D laser scan it, and you know exactly what you've got. Um, but there's a process of exploration. Then there's, a, you know, on our end, uh, on the development side, there's a process of figuring out, does this financially make sense? How do you account for the intangibles, for the meaning, for the community value, for the, um, the person's life essence they put into each one of these brick arches, uh, for, the, for what that constitutes? Uh, and that's a, that's a big lift. Uh, and it doesn't always pan out for adaptive reuse to make sense. I'll add one thing. Um, when you think about the environment we're in right now, where construction costs and raw materials costs and stuff are really high, I'm personally excited about sitting on a big, you know, one of our investors called it a 340,000 square foot mutual fund of commodities. And uh, it's concrete and steel that we don't have to go buy. So it certainly isn't going to offset uh, all the additional costs that are involved with it, but it does, it does help some. And a, a statement that comes to mind, and this is relative to Crosstown, you may remember McLean. Mayor Wharton, when we were opening that building, he made the statement, for an adaptive reuse for a project like this, there are far more red lights than there are green lights. So it's perseverance from people like these people sitting next to me that really makes it happen. All right, hey everyone, uh, Marcus Cox. Uh, 
So uh, Ashley, you just said something that, and this is for everybody, but Ashley, you said something that hit to me as well. I am blessed to be a Memphian, a first generation Memphian actually. Uh, and I lived in, I've lived in a number of communities as well. Um, what generally happens in communities, like when we think about, you know, our, our, our Starworth schools like um, Orange Mound and Hamilton, I'm sorry, Melrose and Hamilton and all of these, you know, great schools, they're still producing amazing people, right? These are great kids. They get, you know, wonderful scholarships. They go to amazing schools, sometimes in Memphis, sometimes away. What happens, though, is generally you produce these wonderful people and they go and they get great educations and then they don't come home, which, you know, 50, 60 years ago, like my in-laws, their very first house after they were born was right next door to their parents, right? And then when they got their next big house, it was around the corner from their parents. So they lived in that neighborhood. They were developed in that neighborhood. They got education and they came back and gave back to that neighborhood. So the question is, as we think about adaptive reuse and re rebuilding and making great uh, you know, new uses of these spaces in these neighborhoods, how does that entice um, our future to come back into their neighborhoods after they get developed and they grow and they learn? He said I, can, yeah. <laughs> I can respond, I didn't want to be the only person. Um, yeah, I mean, that's a really great point. And I think a lot of times one of our challenges is that we, and I'm, when I say I, I mean HCD. I don't want to speak for those up here, but we don't. We're not. We're not always thinking of the people in the development. So we're looking at the space. We're looking at um, the budget. We're looking at the timeline. You know, we're looking at all the things, and it's going to be great and beautiful. It's informed by that community support, but we're not always thinking. Okay, now how can I reach back? And so I think what we just have to do is we. You know, we know we can't do it alone. We have to have really great partners like Jimmy. I see you there. Who Jimmy's the architect. Um, self Tucker on um, on the Melrose project, but really we just have to think about how are we making those connections. How are we not going to work with our head down every day, you know, hammering and then walking away, but really uh, connecting. So we've got a really great um, advisory committee with the. Um, with Melrose, I think it might be called the Melrose Advisory Committee, to think about the history of the area. It's made up of some, some alumni. We've been working with the alumni group to let them know what's going on. We had a phenomenal um, groundbreaking, I think it was last year, just something that I, I had never seen, but it was just so much community support and engagement. And really that's where you just have to pull in those other partners and say, this isn't just a city thing, this isn't just a community thing, but it's really all of us. Um, and it's an opportunity for all of us to uh, take advantage of in the future. So I think, I think that's really critically important. I'm glad you, um, you brought that up. You, I mentioned earlier one of ULI's signature programs is uh, Urban Plan. Some of you may have participated in it leading up to um, focus groups that were leading up to Memphis 3.0, the drafting of Memphis 3.0. is where we take um, practical things like Legos and maps and easily readable maps um, for folks to envision uh, a simulation to envision, Quincy can speak to it better than I can, <laughs> to envision um, what planning for their neighborhood would look like. Um, and we, we are revamping that um, in the um, first quarter of next year. Uh, we're in the, the steering committee for that is in the planning phases. And I think this, this program is really important in that it'll, it can allow someone as young as, you know, seven or eight, if they can read the, 
their directions well enough, someone maybe seven or eight to plug into, how do I think about planning for my neighborhood? How do I think about planning for my community? How, I, how do I think about planning for my city? And um, it's an easy entryway for folks to start thinking about it that way. And one of the things that I mentioned earlier is that I think that we need to involve the community and communities around this city and these neighborhoods uh, in the planning for things much earlier than we do. I think that's one of the things, the buy-in of that is one of the things that brings people back home and keeps them here. If they have some part in um, authoring what their neighborhood and what their community looks like, and they're going to author for it serving their needs much better than we would, if that makes sense. Can you hear me? Hear me? There we go, there we go. All right, so hello. Uh, thank you to New Memphis for this event. Amazing uh, job, panelists. Uh, I think somebody mentioned capital stacking. Can you kind of share some of the capital that you've been able to leverage to work on some of these projects? And even for the $76 million project in a blighted area, poverty, high cr crime-ridden, talk about that pitch to actually get that type of capital to invest in that type of uh, project. Yeah, so I can, I can start um, on the Melrose project. So we've got, like I said, I think three funding sources. Um, we started with a, a huge contribution from Mayor Strickland, so Accelerate Memphis. I think he's invested $200 million across the city. Many up here are involved in various uh, phases of that. But um, we got $10 million from Accelerate Memphis. Uh, we received another um, three million, but we're only committing at this point like one million from uh, Congressman Cohen's office for the project. We realized we didn't have enough, so we said, okay, can we get some federal funds? So we have community development block grant funding um, in the project. I think we've got three million of that. We said, okay, we still don't have enough. So then we said, okay, can we get some additional CIP funds? We got last year, I think, 500,000 of CIP and what's the next part? We still didn't have enough. So we got two more million. Um, and I mean, we're still, we're like, we're like at budget. I know Jimmy can tell you he's, and he does the hard work. I feel bad, Jimmy, up here talking about the project and you're, <laughs> you're doing the work. Um, but really, you know, it's, it's, it's a struggle and these things just take a lot of money. They take a lot of time. It has been years in the making and sort of, we, we got to a good point where we felt like we knew what was in front of us. And then as you start to uncover walls and, um, and, and take out roots, materials, all those things, you start to see your cost, uh, where your costs need to go. And so um, it's good to have um, a good contingency fund, I will put it that way. <laughs> hey, uh, one, uh, yeah, everything rises and falls on leadership. So thank you guys for leading here in our city. We're so grateful. Thank you for all you leaders being here as a piece of this. Um, Hey, I, I know a lot of you guys personally, and I know this isn't just about um, money, and it's a personal passion project. And so can any of you guys share, and as Jamie asked me to say too, is this, it has to be the last question because of time, so, so sorry about that. So anyways, Jamie asked me to say that, but can any of you guys share about maybe as a kid, like driving over to Arkansas to visit your grandparents and seeing a certain building all the time and wondering about it, or maybe even... Maybe even 15 years ago, before you even got close to buying the building, you had the building as your groom's cake. Can anybody say that that's part of their story? They'd like to share some of Quick. <laughs> Quincy talking about nerding out on the stuff. Yep. I'll one-up you. Hold my beer. Uh, <laughs> the Stirrick building was my wedding, my groom's cake in 2006. Most people have, uh, have their... <laughs> uh, 
most people have a, a basketball or a football or the mascot of their college team, and I had a, I had a 90-year-old skyscraper on, as my, as my groom's cake. Now, I, I, if, you, if you told me then that I'd be helping on the redevelopment of it, you know, 18 years later, I, uh, I would have been shocked, but um, John is right. And I did, as a kid, I did, I've, I've recounted to him, uh, my, my maternal grandparents lived in Little Rock, and so almost monthly, we were back and forth over that bridge, and I would, I'd, as we were coming back in Memphis, I would scan the skyline, and I'm like, that one looks different than all the rest of it. It just kind of piqued my interest. It was like almost like a haunted house. And that's why it's been in my, in my mind for a long time. So. Anyone else want to answer that or it's hard to beat? I got, a, I got a two cents I'll throw in on that as to all why right. I'm a nerd. And so I think this also speaks to the need of our, of our communities. I just have to put this in. And so I talked about going to school to study city planning. Well, that was because of my parents. And so I had a mom who was a school teacher and my dad worked for Union Pacific Railroad. And so unlike a, a lot of my comrades in school, I spent a lot of our fall breaks and spring breaks in other cities. And so my parents were just big on exposure. And so by the time I was 14, 15 years old, I had been to like the largest, the 15 or 16 largest cities in the country. And so I wanted to know why Memphis was different from Chicago, why Memphis was different from LA, Seattle, Miami, so on and so forth. And so the exposure was one, my parents taking me outside of Memphis and showing me something different. But then I was fortunate enough to have an uncle who was from Memphis who was a lobbyist on Capitol Hill in Washington, DC. And so I said, I think I wanna know more about cities. My parents didn't know what that was. And they said, well, you better call your uncle in Washington. And I was telling him about it. And he said, well, Quincy, he said, there's this college course called urban planning. He said, why don't you look into it? And then I figured out that's what I was gonna do. So the exposure was critical. That's great. Well, let's, let's give them one final round of applause. And I think y'all can go ahead and step down. All right, y'all are almost done with me. So no more applause, you can't applause that. But um, I'd like to introduce uh, Tanya Hart to uh, provide our closing remarks. Uh, she is the um, Executive Vice President and Chief Human Resources Officer for First Horizon Corporation. She provides strategic leadership by articulating HR needs and plans to the Executive Management Committee, shareholders, and the Board of Directors. She also serves on the Board of Trustees for New Memphis. Please join me in welcoming Tanya. Hi everyone, so just one last um, round of applause for our panelists, as well as our MC with The Righteous Wife. And I wanna thank everyone um, for your participation who's in the room today. You know, what's personal for me, just listening to our panelists, is that you talk about these areas in these communities. And I think you mentioned the, the 25 years that someone lives in the community. I grew up in one of those vulnerable communities, right, really adjacent to Northside. And so I understand that and what that looks like. You know, my family and I really have a purpose, and my friend Lee Mansberg can attest to this. We really are focused on poverty and education to really be able to elevate our city. And so thank you guys for the reminder of why that's become a passion for my husband and I, and I really appreciate it. So now to my prepared remarks. First Horizon, um, we really strive to support organizations that work to meet our community needs 
as well as to improve the well-being of our neighbors through human and health services. And because of this, you know, First Horizon, we are really proud to support events like this. You know, and more importantly, the conversations that we had in the room today just really touched me, and I'm sure that they um, touched you guys as well. Um, our, our hope is that when you leave today, that, you know, you think about our great city and what's happening and that you're really energized um, by the intentional and innovative collaborations that are really happening in our community. We hope to see everyone at the event in November. And then also, you guys will get me in trouble, so you, everyone has a phone. If you'll pull out your phones, and then also, you know, New Memphis really relies on feedback, which is so critical for conversations like this. So everyone has a QR code. So if you'll go and look at that and answer that and get some feedback regarding today's event. Thank you, everyone, for your time this afternoon. We really appreciate it. Independent Bank is celebrating 25 years of sharing your stories, building your dreams, and serving you heroically. Find out how iBank can help you achieve your financial dreams at i-bankonline.com. Member FDIC.